go ahead and be seated. As you take your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Revelation chapter 2. You can log in on your phones or your tablets and follow us through on the YouVersion Bible app if you should so choose to do so. I'll wait for you to find your place before we get started. So the flow of the message will be of that of last week. Understand that as Jesus dictated these letters, they follow a, a same pattern. First of all, he starts off with the characteristic of a sender. And there's a compliment to the recipients. There's a criticism against the recipients. There's a command for them to follow and obey. And then it ends with a, a, a commitment uh, should they be faithful to the end. And so what we're going to look at this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And as we do that, we understand that sometimes the church is called upon to suffer terrible persecution. It's always been true throughout history, and it was certainly true for the church of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna would be a picture of what the church ought to be. The church ought to be a dynamic witness for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in and through all circumstances, no matter what. It's, it, this is a picture of a church that, that loves Jesus even enough to take a stand for Jesus in a culture that is resistant to it. And so for this church, they're willing to take that stand even if it costs them personally. And for many of them, that's exactly what it did. And so we begin uh, with verse number 8. We start with the characteristic of the one who sends this letter. And verse 8 says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. So the Christians in Smyrna, they actually received uh, the shortest of all seven letters. And here Christ characterizes himself as the first and the last who, who died and, and came to life. Now, when he says that he's the first and the last, he is declaring his supreme authority. The presence of our Lord spans all of time. As John records in John 1.1, he says that in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the characteristic of the sender is that of His supreme authority. His presence covers all of time. His presence covers all of our problems, all of our circumstances, all of the troubles of life. And so we see His power over time, and then we also see His power over sin. He, he says He's the one who died and came to life. So his death was a passing phase. He triumphs over death and he came to life. So the death of our Lord followed in his resurrection, knowing that the resurrection was a once and for all act. Once it's done, it's done. It's been completed, it's finished. Christ purchased and secured victory over sin in victory over death. And so the message to the church is that 
no matter what they might be experiencing or no matter what it is that they might yet experience, all they need to do is to be faithful and to remember that this is only a passing phase. It's only a, a short-lived episode. And even if this phase ends in the experience of death, then we have nothing to worry because death has been conquered. It has been defeated. And, and so these aspects of Christ, His power over time and His power over sin, were especially relevant to the Christian community in Smyrna because they, like Christ, were experiencing severe persecution. Notice the compliment that they've received. Look at verse number 9. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What a comfort it must have been for the church to know that, that Christ was fully aware of all of their suffering. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And even though you think you're poor and you have nothing, Jesus says and declares, but you are rich. And so besides suffering extreme persecution, they were also enduring harsh poverty. They lived in a culture and in a place where, where Rome had, had instituted a law that said that the state had to be the first loyalty of all its citizens. And in, in order for a citizen uh, to show their loyalty to the state, that once a year each citizen was required to go before the government officials and to declare Caesar is Lord. That is how they pledged their allegiance to Rome. And so, of course, a true believer, they wouldn't be able to do this because they're not going to declare anyone or anything Lord other than Jesus Christ. And so refusal to proclaim Caesar as Lord would bring about great hardship in their lives, would ultimately lead them to, to unemployment and poverty. And notice that that word poverty means abject poverty. It means possessing absolutely nothing. They had nothing. They were the poorest of the poor. And Jesus looks upon them. Remember, he's the one that walks among the churches, observing everything about them. We, we looked at that last week. And as he looks at them, although they physically have nothing and they're experiencing tribulation and they're extremely poor, Jesus declares that they are oh so rich. So refusal to proclaim Caesar as Lord led to harsh living. In fact, this, this, this declaration of, of Caesar as Lord in the Roman state, especially in Smyrna, Smyrna was intensely loyal to Rome. So much so that they actually developed a strong emperor worship culture. It was so strong and so prevalent in that area that some 50 years after John dies, there is a, a man by the name of Polycarp. Have you heard of Polycarp before? Polycarp is the, the pastor of the church of Smyrna. 
And because Polycarp refuses to declare Caesar as Lord, he's ultimately executed because he refuses to pledge that allegiance to the state. And so here, the believers in Smyrna, they're, they're undergoing harsh persecution and suffering. But it wasn't just from governmental officials. It was from other religious people. In addition to the fact, uh, you got to consider that there was a, a large Jewish community that lived in Smyrna. Now, the Jews, they had a different arrangement with the state. The Jews didn't have to go before a government official to declare their first allegiance to Caesar because their religion was at least accepted and or acknowledged by the state. So, so they didn't have to make that declaration. So while they didn't have to make that declaration, what's also interesting to know is that, yeah, they weren't supporting the government, but nor were they supporting Christian believers as well. And so uh, the, the believers in Smyrna, from, from Jews and Gentiles alike, they were receiving slander and suffering. These believers were, were being persecuted by pagan Gentiles and hostile Jews. And so the Jews in Smyrna, they professed to be followers of God, but they weren't. They were actually persecuting the true followers of the true and living God. And, and so they were not worshipers of God. According to the text, on the contrary, they were worshipers of Satan. So this is the culture in which this church is existing in. And Jesus looks upon them, and he gives a compliment to them, and he says to them, Man, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty. You think you have nothing, but you are so rich. Rich in their faith, rich in their witness and their testimony for our Lord and Savior. And then that third part of the letter, the third part of the letter is the criticism uh, against the church. But you'll notice as we read through it now that there are no words of accusation or criticism given to this church. Well, they may not have enjoyed the approval of men. They certainly received the praise of God. Of all the churches, uh, the church of Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia are the two churches that escape criticism from our Lord. Now, although they're, they're not criticized or, or given accusations uh, from Jesus, they were about to hear something that would be extremely troubling for them to hear. Let's keep on reading. Look at verse number 10. Verse 10 starts off, do not fear. And they said, do not fear what you are about uh, to suffer. So they were already suffering, and then Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This struggling church, this suffering church, this heavily persecuted church was about to hear news it didn't want to hear i would imagine the news that they were longing to hear would have been a message from jesus that would say hey your suffering is over it's done well done 
but that's not what they, they receive. It starts off with, do not fear. In other words, the suffering that you're experiencing in, in Smyrna is about to get worse. This tribulation will expand to the point uh, that some of its members would be thrown into prison. And the important message our Lord is trying to express and convey to them was the message of faithfulness. Staying true to God no matter what. No matter what government officials may do to you. No matter what other religious people might declare or force upon you. Stay faithful and true to what God has called you to. Jesus says that their tribulation would not be long. Well, when you say it would not be long, it all depends on from what perspective you're looking at it from. For them, it had to feel like an eternity. And in fact, I mentioned Polycarp, who, 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 who dies as a result of his refusal to declare his loyalty and his allegiance to the state of Rome. And, and that's, I mean, that's a year 156 A.D. I mean, that's, that they're still suffering. But you got to understand that in the Bible, uh, the, the, the ten days is often symbolic of a short period of time. It's, it's often used as, uh, to express the idea that it's only temporary. So whether or not you look at that 10 days as being literal or, you know, figurative, it, it, it matters not. Either 10 days is literal 10 days or, or the 10 days that the message of Jesus is declaring is that this suffering would be for a limited period of time. This, this suffering does not prove that our Lord is powerless Remember, he's the first and the last. He's the one that died and came back to life. He has the power of the time, and he has power over sin, power over death. Now, it doesn't prove that he's powerless. I want you to notice what this suffering is all about. The, the text tells us, he says that the suffering, he says that you may be tested. So that's why they're going to suffer during this short period of time. They're suffering was brought about so that they might be tested. And so while the Lord's tests are not always pleasant, while we're enduring them, they are productive. And, and James writes in James chapter 1, verse number 3, he teaches us that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And you get into verse number four, it said, uh, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So, so this church was suffering severe, severe tribulation. They were enduring great hardship. And the message of Jesus said, hey, don't be afraid. Get ready. You're about to suffer some more. And the reason why you're going to suffer is so that you may be tested. Now, this concept of suffering kind of baffles believers uh, throughout church history. I mean, it makes sense that the sinful and the wicked people would have to suffer. But why would righteous people who are pursuing God, remaining faithful to God, why would they have to suffer? That doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. What is that kind of suffering all about? Those are good questions. I'm glad you asked that today. But you know, the beautiful thing about that question is that its answer is found within this book. 
We don't have to be left clueless about this concept of suffering. We're not clueless about trials and tribulations in our life if we'll just read and study the Word of God. There are many possible reasons why we might have times and periods of suffering in our lives. I'm simply going to give you four this morning. Four potential reasons why we might have to suffer. And so first reason, suffering may be disciplinary. It may be the bringing about discipline in our lives. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 3, the text will be behind me. It says, think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his children. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, check this out. It means you're illegitimate and are not really his children at all. I pause right there. If you never fallen under the divine discipline and correction of God. The text says it means you're illegitimate and you don't really belong to Him. It goes on to say, since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it happens. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peace of harvest of right living for those who are trained in its way. Sometimes we suffer as a result of discipline. And let's be honest, God is much more concerned about the development of our holiness than he is in the provision of our happiness. Our Father is much more concerned about the development of our character than he is in the provision of our comfort. We should warmly welcome this discipline into our lives. No matter how painful it is, we, we should see it as the blessing that it's meant to be. And so sometimes the suffering is the result of God's divine discipline in and through our lives. Sometimes we, we suffer as a preventative measure. In other words, I, I begin to think of uh, Paul and Paul and his, uh, the thorn in his flesh that he speaks about. So sometimes our suffering is preventative, as in the case of Paul. Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 7. says, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. 
So why did he have that suffering brought about into his life? To keep him humble. To keep him in check. To prevent him from becoming this proud, arrogant, self-righteous individual. He says, I was given this thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes suffering is brought about as discipline. Sometimes it's preventative. Sometimes it's the way we learn obedience. And after all, this is, uh, we follow the pattern of Christ in this. It's an interesting verse to me in, in the realization in Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 8 says, Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. It's a, it's a way of learning obedience. And then the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5, it says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So sometimes... Uh, discipline is disciplinary. I mean, suffering is disciplinary. Sometimes it's preventative. Sometimes it's the way uh, to learn obedience. And then other times we suffer as a testimony for Jesus Christ. We suffer so that Christ can be glorified in and through us. It says in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument, to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to people of Israel. And verse 16 says, And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Oh, there's many reasons why we could potentially have to suffer or endure, you know, times and periods of, of hardship. We, we don't need to dismiss them and, and, and pray necessarily for their removal. We need to pray for God's understanding and insight so that we can identify what this suffering is all about in our life. And if it's a suffering that's brought about for discipline to correct us from sinful attitudes and behavior, then we confess that and we repent from that. If it's a way of learning obedience, then let's learn as much as we can. So hopefully the suffering will come to an end. And that we can keep on moving forward to honor and to glorify God. But in the midst of our trials and tribulations, we're encouraged to be faithful. And one of the ways that we can be faithful is by bringing to memory everything that awaits us after death. Namely, we're talking eternal life. 
And so I want you to notice uh, the commitment that's given to all that overcome. Look at verse number 11. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So the promise or the commitment is given to the one who conquers. The, the one who conquers, it's, it's a promise that's given to those that faithfully follow, put their trust, put their lives in our Savior's hands. So to all believers, we, we have this commitment assuring us that we will not be hurt by the second death. The end of, of verse number 10 says that we will receive the crown of life. And then the end of verse number 11 says the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this promise or this commitment is twofold. So, so first of all, the overcomer shall receive the crown of life. And the crown of life simply means uh, the reward of eternal life. Eternal life in the presence of, of the Creator. It, it's life that goes on forever and ever. So those that persecute us may be able to take our earthly lives, but they can't remove from us eternal life. It's the promise. So man can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. So those that overcome those that faithfully endure will receive the promise of the crown of life. But not only that, uh, the overcomer shall be delivered from the second death. And so what is the second death? Second death mentioned later in in the book of Revelation. It's talking about uh, the lake of fire. It's the eternal judgment uh, and condemnation for all those whose names aren't recorded in the book of life. It's the eternal separation from the very presence of God. And that eternal separation goes on forever and ever and ever. So as believers, we may have to pass through physical death, but we will never have to experience the second death. So the one who died and came to life again, is powerful enough to keep his people safe. That's the promise. Even if we have to pass through the gates of martyrdom, the first death is merely the death of a physical body. We still escape the second death. And that's a glorious promise to those who believe. So in your trials... In your tribulations, as you, as you study and understand the Word of God, may you also understand what the purpose is for the season of life that you're going through. And may you, uh, like, like David, the, the, the psalmist declare, not necessarily that God would change the, the path that you're on or that God would smooth out the road that He has you on. David says his prayer is that God would give him feet for the journey that the Lord put him on. Oh, it's a beautiful understanding. In fact, uh, this past week as I was working uh, on this message, I was sitting at my desk and uh, I got an email notification. I mean, I usually get this specific one every Monday afternoon because I subscribe to this uh, weekly devotion uh, from an individual by the name of Ray Vanderland. 
He's my all-time favorite uh, scholar to, to study from. Uh, I love his Bible studies that he, that he produces. And so I have this, uh, this resource that gets emailed to me every week. It comes from uh, That the World May Know is the, the website. So it's a weekly video devotion. And so it's usually three to four minutes long. And so I got an email notification. I was in the midst of working on this message. And I thought, I'll just go ahead and look at it now. And so I went ahead and played it. And as I was playing it, I was like, oh, that, that's exactly what we're talking about right now in this. So I want to share with you my weekly devotion that I received on Monday. I want to see if you can see the connection between what he has to say and what the promise is to those that will overcome, what we're reading here through Revelation chapter 2. So if you've never seen Ray uh, Vanderland before, you're about to be introduced to him. Uh, it's the, the resource comes from that the world may know. It'll be on a video right now, so go ahead and play that for me, guys. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer so that I can go on the heights. I was surprised many years ago when I first went to the land of Israel to discover the wild goats that live in the mountains and cliffs of the desert. Ibex, they call them. Amazing animals, really. They live out in the deepest desert where very little else lives. They can climb those cliffs like you can't imagine, right up the side of a sheer cliff, jumping from rock to rock to rock, almost at a dead run sometimes. Amazing. The Bible tells us that when David was in that area of the country where those wild goats live, he wrote those words, which actually show up in the Bible three times. God, make my feet like the feet of a deer. The thought that crossed my mind is it would have been easier for David to pray, God, make my path easier. At that moment, he was running for his life. He was in trouble. But he doesn't pray for an easier path. It's almost as if David is thinking, God, you know what path is best for me. You would never put me somewhere where I shouldn't be. So when I'm on that path you've chosen, give me the right feet. Give me the feet of this deer, and I can handle any path in life. I don't know what your path is today. I don't know what my path is going to be today in terms of what we'll experience and what God will lead us into or allow us to be involved in. I hope it's wide and flat and easy. Those are the nice paths. But no matter what kind of a path it is, I've learned to pray, God, give me the right feet. And on those occasions when my path is painful and hard, I found that the right feet are just enough. I'd encourage you to pray that prayer today, too. That whatever path God chooses to make your path today, that the God who is your strength would give you the feet of a deer. So watching that again, I also begin to think of trust the Lord with all your heart. 
Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. He will take you on a roundabout journey so that you arrive at the right destination. And so many times in our hardships and in our struggles, we pray, God, remove it from me. But may we now begin to understand that there is a process of development that we must go through in this life. And that process is painful. Yes, absolutely. But in the midst of those trials, may we, like David, now begin to pray, all right, God, give me the feet for this path. Give, give me the, the, the strength to endure what it is that I am going through in this time of my life. And no matter what, help me to, to be faithful in the midst of this. Like, like the church in Smyrna. The, the, the church in Smyrna was unlike the church in Ephesus that we talked about last week. Here, they're facing persecution. They're in the midst of poverty. They're going to face imprisonment. And some of them are ultimately going to give their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. And the heart of the message for them was not a message of repent. No, their message was be faithful. Be faithful to the end, even if the end is death, because don't be discouraged if it's a physical death, because you're protected from the second death. It's all good. This is temporary. Don't get so attached and wrapped up in this world. It matters nothing in comparison to what awaits us. You're suffering if you're in that period and in, in season of tribulation in your life. Have the right perspective. The command here is reinforced not by a threat, but the command is reinforced by the promise. I'll give you the crown of life. You'll be spared from the second death. I want you to understand that it cost, and it cost greatly to be a dedicated, committed follower of Jesus Christ. A lot of times you don't like to talk about that. We like to cheapen grace. And talk about, ah, it's the free gift of God, and all you have to do is believe, and everything will be good. That's not exactly how the, the Scriptures portray it. Salvation is the gift of God, absolutely. We can't purchase salvation on our own, that's true. But in order to receive salvation into our life, the Scripture tells us that we must confess Him as Lord and Savior. We're to believe in our hearts and to confess with our mouth. We believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's Master. Ruler. He's everything. Is He? Is he that for you? Is he everything in your life? The last text I'd like to share with you comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. And there in verse number 12 and 13, it says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to 
all the world. If you're suffering today, God's command to us is to rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in it all. Trust in Him. May He give you the feet of deer on the road that He has you on so that you can be faithful to Him no matter what. I want to pray for us. We're going to have a time of invitation. Uh, We'll be down here at the front. Uh, Joel will be down here with me. We're here to pray with you, to talk with you, to encourage you in any way that we can. But before we do our time of invitation, let's, let's have a moment of prayer if we could. Father, you know our hearts, you know our lives, you know our journey. And in this moment, I ask the church, how many of you would say, Pastor, I need prayers because I'm frustrated, I, I, I'm struggling today. Struggling in life, struggling in my faith, whatever that struggle is, I have struggle, I have pain, I'm suffering today. Would you pray for me? Raise your hands where you're at. Just raise your hand. Absolutely. Father, you know, you know the reason why those hands are raised. You know the reason why those that are suffering didn't raise their hand. You know all things, Father. God, you have the power over time, the power over sin. God, help us to understand what it is that's happening in our lives in this moment. God, give us the feet to, to be able to go on this journey with great faithfulness, seeking to bring glory and honor to you and in, in through all things. So, Father, today, as we're filled with, with fear, as we're filled with discouragement, maybe even frustration, I pray that we can confess that fear, repent from it, and turn to you. In this room, sins need to be confessed. Decisions need to be made. God, right now, we don't need to be worrying about anything or anyone else other than our relationship with you. So, Father, help us to to understand, to identify what it is that's in our life that displeases you in this moment. God, may we have the courage and the conviction to confess it, to repent from it, and to run after you. Oh God, be, be glorified, be praised, and may you be pleased with this time of invitation. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.